0: Again to America's Constitution. So we're here in our, I believe it's our 22nd episode today. Welcome, Akil.
1: Wow. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Andy. Uh, uh, it uh, it just seems like yesterday.
0: Indeed. So um, we started uh, last week on kind of a new theme, a new unit on the uh, Constitution and the Ivy League. Um, first, we, we talked about Harvard, and uh, today we're going to be talking about Princeton. And as two Yale men, we'll then kind of dismiss the rest. No, <laughs> and we'll, no, we'll, we'll talk about the rest of the Ivy League uh, together um, after that. You know, I think it's interesting that our podcast has been sorting itself out into, into themes. We started with uh, a theme of, of bullets dodged, and then we wound up going into, of course, themes surrounding the book, uh, the words that made us. Um, then we had a, a, a civil liberties theme, uh, with some great guests, and now we're, we're on this theme of the Constitution and the Ivy League, and I think it, it's actually reflective of uh, the way that you uh, approach the Constitution. You look for themes, you look for patterns, um, and so perhaps it's not surprising that a, a uh, podcast uh, that, that uh, follows your thinking would, would evolve in this way. Andy, as usual, you've
1: got me just right. Um, I'm always looking for patterns. Sometimes uh, in constitutional law, we uh, call these patterns structural constitutional argument, separation of powers, checks and balances. Well, that's seeing a pattern in the Constitution. There are three separate articles, Articles 1, 2, and 3, uh, creating separate departments or, or branches, if you will, um, with... Uh, Uh, staffed by different folks with different kinds of powers. That's a pattern. And and they um, uh, sometimes uh, resist each other in interesting ways. And so we could call it separation of powers. We could call it checks and balances, but that's a pattern. There's no separation of powers clause or checks and balances clause. Um, Federalism, that's a pattern. There's no federalism clause, but we can see a larger architectural spirit of the relationship between the state and the the states and the federal government, that's vertical federalism, or among the states, um, that's called horizontal federalism, that's a pattern. Now, that's what constitutional law people do, um, and political scientists are also interested in, in various patterns, a two-party system, um, for example, and its implications and entailments, and I, I do law, I do political science, but, but this book is a history book um, also, uh, and I am looking for historical patterns of all sorts. Um, historians are sometimes uh, 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 divided into two groups, the splitters and the lumpers. The splitters are always emphasizing the singularity and the distinctiveness of each thing, and the lumpers are trying to see actions and patterns, like the way in which the const, uh, internal constitutions are interacting with national security and uh, external international relations, diplomacy, and war. That's a larger pattern, a, a pattern by which people who fight for America uh, ultimately get to vote in America. Uh, unproperty people, the founding black men after the Civil War, um, 18-year-olds um, after Vietnam. Um, women are, in effect, part of the, um, the larger um, defense force in, in, in World War One, and that's when, when they get the vote. Um, Talk about patterns about who becomes president. Well, it's your generals and your diplomats early on. I'm always looking for patterns of various sorts. And actually, it turns out there are interesting patterns uh, about the connections between uh, uh, educational institutions and our constitutional project, and uh, in particular, um, Ivy League uh, institutions.
0: I think that uh, in some sense... The patterns that you look for separate uh, like a holistic originalism from a textualism.
1: Exactly so. I've got a great student. His name is Grant Gabriel. And he shows me, which I didn't understand before, that the words 25, 30, and 35, um, which are age uh, minima for the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the presidency, respectively, actually part of a larger pattern, a course of honors, a series of offices that people must step through before becoming um, the, the highest officer in the land. And he shows in a really interesting um, uh, uh, essay that hasn't been published yet, I've actually shown it to you offline, as, as you know, that there's a connection between that and uh, a Roman idea of a course of honors. Now, that's the sort of thing that someone like Scalia is just looking at individual words would never see because he's just going to say, well, 25 means 25. And it means that even if life expectancy changes, 25 still means 25. And it means uh, a solar calendar, you know, rather than some other unconventional thing. And he's right about those things, but but he's missing much of the, of the meaning and the richest because he's reduced the Constitution to sentences, and he's reduced the sentences to words, and he's reduced the words to dictionary definitions, plain meaning, and, and if you do that always, um, you, you miss the patterns. Now, he, in fact, to his credit, doesn't do that always, and in his greatest opinion of all, a dissent in uh, uh, the independent counsel case, Morrison versus Olson, he does see larger patterns of separation of powers and checks and balances.
0: Okay, so last time in our episode on Harvard Hui, we took a look at the role of Harvard in the founding period and examined its significance. We saw how later generations of Harvard men and now women have paid attention to these Harvard-related events, sometimes through a lens that might even distort them. Then we looked at some Harvard academics that opined on matters which you, Akil, in turn consider, and you took issue with some of them. Now we're going to turn our view away from Harvard, so we'll first land in Princeton, as we said, and we'll take a similar roadmap, but it turns out that Princeton is really quite a rich font of fodder for us. So this will span two episodes. Today we'll begin naturally in the past, and we'll take a look at the place that the most notable institutions of higher education had in the society of the founding period. And then we will look at Princeton's role in particular. So let's begin.
1: The story of the Ivy League is inextricably intertwined with the story of the Constitution. Um, Of the eight colleges in the Ivy League, seven uh, were in existence at the time of the Constitution. Uh, There are seven of the nine universities uh, that are in existence, the other two being uh, College of William and Mary in Virginia and uh, um, what's now known as Rutgers, uh, which was back then known as Queens College. Um, Columbia was known as King's College. Uh, and the f- uh, very few people went to college in uh, the founding era. An average graduating class had a couple dozen at most. Um, but these folks who are college educated are disproportionately um, influential um, in the founding era. There was a very generous review of my book uh, in the New York Times, and uh, but one criticism that the journalist um, author said is that I said Joseph's story is largely self-made, um, and the reviewer said, well, his father was a surgeon. But back then, you see, Surgeons were like um, blacksmiths, and dentists, you know, were blacksmiths, and they were sawbones. Uh, um, so, um, uh, the, the social meaning has changed. Uh, jo- um, Joseph Story's father wasn't really quite a highborn gentleman, and how do we know that? He didn't go to Harvard, nor did John Adams' father, um, for example, or James Otis's, for that matter. So, um, Joseph Story's first generation Harvard like John Adams, like James Otis. Um, And again, very few people are going to college, but that is the mark of a gentleman. And Alexander Hamilton is born into nothing, but he gentles his condition by going to King's College, um, to modern-day Columbia. Uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin himself didn't go to college, but he founds the University of Pennsylvania. Um, So uh, going to college um, was a very big deal because very few people... Um, were able to do so. Um, and, um, uh, and so, in fact, um, Joseph's story, he wasn't first born. I think he was seventh born. And his father, although a respectable character, wasn't really a gentleman of the first rank, even though he was. He made himself into a surgeon of a certain sort. So the journalist, um, who gave me a very generous review, might not have known all of that because he's not an historian. Um, but I am an historian, and I'm, I'm not um, making up the deep connections between the Ivy League and um, the Constitutional Project. Um, uh, and um, so a one person who um, has been a hero of mine, I've uh, been hugely influent, influenced by many of his books, um, is Gary Wills. Um, and he actually was kind enough to, to blurb the book. Um, the blurb came in a little bit later than the other, so it's actually not on the back um, cover, the paper jacket cover, um, uh, but it's actually in the book itself, um, uh, right before the title page, after the copyright page. And Willis himself is, uh, has a graduate degree from Yale, um, and he notices all of this stuff, because he's a very good cultural historian and notices all sorts of things. So in his book on the Federalist, called Explaining America, um, here's one thing that he says in his first chapter. He says, um, now he's talking about the Philadelphia Convention... Um, and its precursor, a thing called the Annapolis Convention, the meeting um, with a guy named Houston at Annapolis was a forecast of the Princeton gathering Madison would find to his pleasure at the Constitutional Convention. Nine Princeton graduates would be present at Philadelphia as opposed to three from Harvard and four from Yale. Okay, so there are only 55 total, um, and they're not all there at the same time, but of the 55... Nine go to one school, Princeton, um, and three from Harvard and, and four from Yale. But, but what Will is the seeing is it's a Princeton story to some extent. Now, this book, Explaining America, has, um, obviously, it, it has chapters. It In fact, has 31 in all. The title of chapter two is Nassau Hall. Which is the, the, um, a metaphor for Princeton. It's the oldest um, a, a building on, uh, extant building on the Princeton campus, and, and Princeton is sometimes referred to, um, metonym, as a metonym um, uh, as um, uh, Nassau Hall. And the uh, um, and the alma mater
0: China. of Princeton is Old Nassau, and their fight song is going back to Nassau Hall.
1: And you live in Princeton Junction, so you know all this stuff, even though you, like me, are a total Yaley. Um, so that's chapter two of um, this book. Uh, excellent book on the Federalist um, papers, the, the, uh, uh, um, the Federalist essays, um, uh, what they call The Federalist. Um, the book by Gary Willis, again, is Explaining America, The Federalist. Chapter two is entitled, there are only, as I said, there are 31 chapters. Chapter two is Nassau Hall. Chapter seven is King's College, today meaning um, uh, Columbia. So um, Wills is attentive to this. Um Gordon Wood is really attentive to um, college education and and that's a mark of a gentleman um, uh, um, in a world where all lots of folks are kind of self made um, uh, and and this is true today. Um, so the connection between the constitution and the ivy League I'm, I'm not imagining it. it's actually deep and enduring um, and um, uh, Daniel Webster, in a very famous 1819 case, the Dartmouth College case, it's about his own alma mater, you see, because Daniel Webster is a graduate of Dartmouth, which is the youngest of the, um, the, the, the ancient seven. Cornell, which is in the Ivy League, is a much um, uh, later um, uh, founded institution. But the seven oldest Ivys, uh, in, I think, you know, roughly chronological order, Harvard's first, um, uh, 1636, um, uh, and then... Um, Yale in, in uh, 1701, and then Princeton, and then um, uh, Penn, founded by um, a, a King's College, um, Columbia, uh, Penn, founded by Ben Franklin, and then um, uh, a Brown, and and Dartmouth. Okay, so those are your seven oldest. Um, Ivy League schools, and there are seven to repeat of the nine schools that uh, uh, are in existence at the time of the Constitution, and Dartmouth is the, the youngest of those. Um, so, but, but Gordon Wood talks about how um, uh, being college educated is really the mark of a gentleman. Um, there, there are other markers, being in a certain kind of profession, um, working with your um, head and not your hands, for example, it, it, it is a difference between you know um, uh, being a gentleman and, and, and merely being a, a respectable character. Um, so, and it's not just based on wealth, um, uh, uh, but how you uh, uh, um, how you acquire your wealth today. Um, this is. Um, we don't like to talk about class in America. It's considered outre, um, but um, roughly a third of uh, Americans, let's say over twenty-five today, roughly a third probably are college educated, probably have college degrees. Um, so two-thirds don't. You know, maybe it's actually up to thirty-five percent now or something. But most Americans do not have college degrees. Now, of the 535 people on Capitol Hill, the 100 senators, and the 435 members of the House of Representatives. You know, two-thirds of Americans don't have college degrees. How many of um, the 535 don't have college degrees? The answer might be three or four, maybe. Um, Lauren Boebert um, from Colorado, maybe from a a few others. Um, That's a class issue today. Um, and and in later episodes, I think you and I are going to talk more about um, college, Yale College in particular, and your own ideas about Yale College, the constitution of Yale College, where you've been actually weighing in uh, of, of late um, and getting actually national attention uh, for it. But um, So I don't think it's just a weird little quirky, um, uh, cutesy obsession of mine to talk about the relationship between College education and the Constitution, and between particular colleges and the Constitution, and Harvard does loom very large, um, and Princeton does loom very large, as Will's just told you. Nine of the 55 people at Philadelphia, Yale actually doesn't loom as large. So there's going to be there are reasons that I'm actually dumping a little bit more on and 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 riffing a little bit more on uh, Princeton um, and and Harvard um, than. Uh, uh, I am um, uh, uh, about Yale because Yale is not as influential in the in the Constitution, the early constitutional process. Which is, I'm going to now make a connection, um, and we're going to talk, of course, about Columbia because that's Alexander Hamilton. But that's the next episode where we'll talk about the rest of the IVs um, uh, Br- Franklin as the founder of Penn, I've already mentioned, and and Daniel Webster and Dartmouth and. Um, and uh, Hamilton and Columbia, and the great Gordon Wood at um, uh, uh, Brown. Um, uh, um, but um, uh, because Yale doesn't have great founding statesmen who become president the way UVA does, um, which is founded. Uh, it wasn't in existence when the Constitution was created, but it was founded by a founder, by a constitutional founder, Thomas Jefferson. Um, so UVA has Jefferson. And Princeton has Madison, and Harvard has John Adams, and there's you know there are houses named there's a there's a residential college um, named for 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 Adams, and and um, and the entire university is Jefferson's university at, at the University of uh, Virginia, and and you can't go to Princeton without seeing sort of Madison splashed sort of everywhere in the iconography and um, in, in the culture. Yale doesn't have a great founder like that. My residential college was actually um, named for someone who, who was an interesting um, uh, founding figure, but a, a lesser one, Ezra Stiles, um, and. Back to Princeton, um, Aaron Burr. There is a residence college um, named for Jonathan Edwards, um, but he doesn't play a big role in the founding as such. His grandson is a more significant figure, but his grandson is a Princetonian named Aaron Burr, who was um, friendly with um, James Madison um, early on, and whose father was not just a Princetonian, but the president of Princeton, Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law. So. Um, but because Yale doesn't have someone like John Adams, the way Harvard does, to name a, a, a house for, doesn't have someone like Jefferson to name the whole university for, the way um, UVA does, or the way Penn is really intimately connected with Ben Franklin, um, or uh, Dartmouth with Daniel, you know, it's, it's prominent alum, Daniel Webster, or Columbia with... Um, the, the, the great Alexander Hamilton, who technically doesn't graduate, but still um, is a very important early uh, uh, Columbia um, uh, uh, representative. And actually, the, Yale-
0: the definition of alumni uh, varies from institution to institution. For example, at Yale, you're considered an alum if you've attended one semester, um, even if you don't uh, graduate.
1: Because Yale doesn't have that stupidly... In the 20th century, they decided to. They were looking for a statesman to name a residential college over. So they were stuck with Calhoun. Now, yes, he was vice president of the United States, and actually, for multiple presidents, John Quincy Adams and and um, Andrew Jackson, and he was a prominent senator. But but I think his uh, he was a bozo. I think his, his he had two constitutional ideas, and they were both genuinely stupid and evil. Um, secession and um, slavery. Slavery is a good idea, thought, um, positive good, thought um, Calhoun, and he thought secession was actually constitutionally permissible, which is a howler. It's completely wrong, and oh, that's one of my obsessions in the book, is to show you how wrong that is. Constitution comes from the likes of Benjamin Franklin, who believes in join or die. We have to unite, and indivisibly so, and he's saying that about the British colonies in 17. Fifty-four, and he, he never loses that idea and of course that's Washington's idea um, he's not college educated he's and, and he has a little bit of uh, you know anxiety about that um, um, Hamilton who of course is a um, uh, uh, Columbia uh, King's College, so so Yale is stupidly in the 1930s naming a residential college after a prominent early statesman, and they're stuck with Calhoun because they don't have an Adams, they don't have a Jefferson, they don't have a Franklin or a Hamilton um, or um, um, a Webster, um, and. Um, uh, w- w- uh, we, we talked about, if you've been to University of Virginia, you know the Rotunda, it, it's, it, it's, it's Jefferson inspired, you know, um, we talked about Princeton and, and, and Adams ha- House at, at Harvard. Um, I teach from time to time at, at Columbia, I'm an adjunct there, and you and I were talking offline um, about uh, Columbia because for Scholar, you actually were checking out the Columbia campus as a possible venue for Scholar courses, and you might want to remind our audience uh, about, about um, something that really struck you when you were on the campus.
0: Yes, well, certainly Hamilton is everywhere, and um, the hall that we were, is a beautiful statue of Alexander Hamilton um, over on the side near the law school, um, and there's a Hamilton Hall, which was actually where we are uh, scheduled to have a, have our course uh, take place in terms of seminars, um, not only in uh, August, but also we'll be back again in October for a course on Montagna. But the... Uh, I would note that in the last episode we mentioned that uh, a little bit about that course and the fact that uh, because of the rescheduling well uh, due to covid there were a couple of people couldn't make it so that this previously um sold out course had uh, two openings and uh, so I would encourage you to check it out at everscour.org. you know Akil, that course uh, I actually think it's uniquely situated because you know, you're going to be teaching it, and this will really be the first time that you're teaching your book, The Words That Made Us. Um, And Professor Stephen Smith is a co-lead professor with you, and he has uh, a new book that's also quite relevant to not only these times, but uh, also our current times uh, on patriotism called Reclaiming uh, Patriotism in an Age of Extremes. And then... The great Gordon Wood will be joining us as well. So, you know, what kind of an interactive sort of conversation do you think will be going on in this course? What sort of issues do you look forward to exploring with, with uh, Professor Smith and Professor Wood?
1: Well, um, today I'm going to talk about Princeton and therefore James Madison preeminently. And as our listeners will soon hear, um, I'm um, more skeptical of Madison. I think he played a less important role Uh, then is conventionally understood. He's not the father of the Constitution. George Washington is. That matters for a whole bunch of reasons. And um, them's fighting words to any Princetonian, uh, but them's also fighting words a little bit to Gordon Wood because it's the one place in my book where I'm most um, different from um, Wood's approach, which has um, really featured Madison centrally, the Federalist 10, Madis, uh, an essay that Madison wrote on vices of the political system uh, um, that he, he, he shared with Washington before the Philadelphia Convention. Um, and um, um, in my view, Gordon Wood is the preeminent living scholar of. Um, uh, uh, American history in general, and especially the, the the revolutionary period, and I so look up to him and admire him both um, intellectually and personally. He's a he's a gentleman. He's a scholar. I th- think he holds himself. Um, um, uh, he, he's a, he's a role model for me. He holds himself, you know, in in a way that, that I only wish more people um, did, um, with dignity and generosity. Um, and I disagree with him about centrally. Um, Madison versus Washington, and and why that matters in terms of understanding the Constitution. Um, and I don't know if he's read the book yet. Uh, have we sent him a PDF, um, uh, but in, at this Ever Scholar event, I'm sure he and I will be discussing that in front of the students. Now, connecting that, so wow, I'm really looking forward to that. Spending time with you know uh, my my favorite historian, who who shaped who I am um, a, a, as a as an historian. Um, um, I learned at his feet, um, so to speak. Um, and uh, but connecting back to um, uh, uh, the Ivy League, he studied, um, he did his graduate degree at Harvard, and then that's not a coincidence, you know, because Harvard is a, a place of constitutional study for reasons that we've talked about. under Bernard Balin. Um, who you know, wrote a famous biography of Thomas Hutchinson, whom we talked about in the last episode, because he's one of my, the first three Harvard men in Chapter 1, along with John Adams and, and James Otis, um, and would studies at Harvard under Bernard Bailyn. you see. Um, and then he teaches um, uh, for his entire career at Brown, you know, which is a great Ivy League institution. He's now emeritus now. And my teacher at Yale College, um, the great Edmund Morgan, was, um, uh, who also studied at Harvard um, uh, with the same um, um, mentor as Bernard Balin, the great Perry Miller. So Perry Miller produces Balin and Morgan, and Morgan helps produce me at Yale, and, and Balin helps produce... Um, Wood, and, and Wood goes to Brown. That's actually where Ed Morgan got his first teaching uh, gig at Brown, and then he comes to Yale. So um, this is all, I'm not making it up, there are these really important um, connections, and I'll tell you one other one. Um, Perry Miller, who was, by acclamation, maybe the, the most interesting and influential uh, American intellectual historian and uh, 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 the the, let's say the interwar period between World War I and World War II, or sort of that period or so, or, um, or the onset of the Cold War, um, maybe all the way up through the 1960s. Um, so um, uh, Perry Miller, um, one of his um, uh, eminent uh, disciples at Harvard is Bernard Balin, um, who produces wood, um, and Jack Rakove, and, and we've, whom we've talked about before, a, a Madison guy, um, and the late, great Pauline Mayer, who writes the best book about the ratification of the Constitution and, and a great book about the Declaration of Independence and um, was my dear friend. Um, so um, Perry Miller produces, um, as one of his um, uh, graduate students, um, Bernard Bailyn, um, and he produces um, Ed Morgan who goes to, um, and, and Balin stays at Harvard and Morgan goes to Brown and Yale and, and is my teacher, um, and was my colleague. But he also produced, um, another, um, interesting, um, scholar who stayed at Harvard named Alan Heimert, um, and Alan's daughter, Lara um, went to Princeton, uh, grew up at Harvard, went to Princeton undergrad, um, uh, um, joined at a freakishly young age, like 23 or something, at Yale University Press, which, um, we became friends, good friends, um, and she's uh, the publisher of my book, she's, she runs basic books, um, and, and hers is a Harvard-Yale-Princeton story too. I'm not making these things up, there are these connections. Stanford is an amazing place, but it's not about American history, it's about the internet. Um, and um, uh, IP and um, and all sorts of other amazing stuff. Um, so the, there is, there are historical connections between these early and um, uh, uh, and and the constitutional project and constitutional scholarship even today.
0: And of course, you mentioned Perry Miller as the outstanding intellectual historian and of course Stephen Smith is a great intellectual historian and his, His uh, lineage, Mm -hmm. I suppose, goes back to the University of Chicago, not the Ivy League, but, you know, with uh, with the Straussian Mm -hmm. school and so forth. Um, And uh, I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, we found his ideas about patriotism creeping into our discussions over and over again, wouldn't you say?
1: Absolutely, looking forward so so. Just on our um, uh, event in New York this summer with Ever Scholar and Andy did tell you there, there there may be a slot or two open because of of, of COVID related cancellations. So if you're interested, be in touch with Andy. But I'm so looking forward to connecting with Stephen Smith. who's it? you know, a, a, a deep and thoughtful scholar in a Straussian tradition um, and, and the great Gordon Wood um, with um, uh, really amazing um, uh, students uh, led by <laughs> the likes of Andy Lipka. So, um, wow.
0: Yes, indeed. I mean, that's the that's the final point before we get on to our discussion here about uh, getting back to Princeton, which is that, um, yes, the scholars will be in conversation with each other, but they'll also be in conversation with us, us, meaning the students. And in fact, that's principally what it is, and that's why we do so much reading ahead of time, so because otherwise it would be, you know, kind of a you know a distant conversation rather than an engaged one. Okay, so can't wait for that. So all right, back to Princeton. Um, so James Madison is a Princeton man, as we know, and tell us a little bit about how you uh, address Madison in your book and um, where you might take issue with those that uh, consider the primacy of Madison.
1: Okay, so I'm actually going to do a reading. Um, And this is um, from a section of the book in which I try to basically say that Madison is not the father of the Constitution. Um, uh, It's George Washington, obviously, Um, So, um, And then after I do the reading, we can talk, if you like, about why that might matter. So I'm going to read a bit from Chapter 5, a chapter called America. And the thesis of Chapter 5 is um, that um, it's really not um, Madison's Constitution. To say that America, more than James Madison wrote the Constitution, is to speak metaphorically. What does this metaphor aim to capture? First, the metaphor highlights the Philadelphia Plan, as ultimately hammered out, built on the best state practices that had emerged between 1776 and 1787. Whether or not the Philadelphia delegates were conscious of this fact at every moment, they were less authors than editors, compilers, sifters and digesters of America's prodigious state-level constitutional work product between 1776 and 1787. Both in the drafting and in the ratification stage, participants routinely compared the proposed federal constitution to extant state constitutions. Many of Madison's darlings died in the summer of 1787. He argued relentlessly for a Senate that, like the House, would be apportioned by population. He lost. He advocated tirelessly for a congressional negative, that is a veto, over state law. He lost again. He wanted the president to be joined with leading judges in wielding the veto power. Here, too, he lost. He pleaded for broad federal power to tax exports. Yet again he lost. The proposed constitution that emerged from Philadelphia also contained signature features that Madison had not pondered prior to the convention. For example, Article 2 created a muscular executive branch centered in one person, independently elected, perpetually re-eligible, and vested with sweeping powers. In a letter to Washington a few weeks before the start of the convention, Madison confessed, confessed that although, quote, a national executive must also be provided, I've scarcely ventured as yet to form my own opinion either of the manner in which it ought to be constituted or of the authorities with which it ought to be clothed." The Constitution thus omitted many items that Madison most wanted and included many important features that he either sharply opposed or had never carefully considered prior to the Convention. Why, then, is Madison widely viewed as the father of the Constitution? Here's the case for Madison. He was instrumental in precipitating the Philadelphia Convention and persuading Washington to emerge from retirement to attend and preside. Madison's home state of Virginia, in effect, called the Convention, and Madison was the chief architect of the Virginia Plan that defined the Convention's conversational agenda. He had prepared for this conclave more carefully than did anyone else. At the convention itself, he was one of a handful of delegates with a perfect attendance record, and he vigorously participated in most of the major debates. He also kept the most extensive set of notes of the proceedings, a veritable treasure trove for historians. After the convention, he worked tirelessly for ratification, He orchestrated the successful defense of the Constitution in all-important Virginia. He also brilliantly collaborated with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay under the pen name Publius to produce 80-plus essays comprehensively analyzing and defending the Constitution. Most of Publius's essays first appeared in newspapers beginning in late 1787. The entire package appeared in mid-1788 as a two-volume book. The Federalist. These essays were the most impressive and comprehensive analysis of the Constitution available to Americans deciding whether to vote yes or no. Centuries later, The Federalist remains the first thing that any thoughtful American who wants to understand the Constitution in historical context should read. After ratification, Madison went on to champion a series of amendments to the Constitution, a Bill of Rights, that improved the Constitution's substance and helped win over initial doubters and opponents. When the freedom of speech and of the press enshrined in the First Amendment came under assault in the late 1790s, Madison, who had sponsored the First Amendment in 1789, powerfully and successfully championed these fundamental freedoms, freedoms at the very bedrock of a proper system of constitutional conversation. Still later... He served as Secretary of State and then for eight years as America's fourth president. One of his biggest, best, and earliest sets of constitutional ideas about the need for strong federal oversight of individual states to protect in-state minorities would eventually become a new constitutional cornerstone when the Constitution was reconstructed after the Civil War. Throughout his long career of public service, he was a rare combination, a powerful thinker and a powerful doer. The Constitution was central to much of what he thought and much of what he did. Okay, so that's the constitutional case for Madison. Here's the case against Madison um, as, quote, the, founder, the father of the Constitution, unquote. Despite all of Madison's constitutional service before during, and after Philadelphia, the stubborn fact remains that the final Philadelphia plan reflected few of his most original and distinctive ideas. Before the convention, John Jay, Henry Knox, and Madison, in that order, had all sent Washington outlines proposing that a new federal constitution broadly resemble tripartite and bicameral state constitutions. This basic structure was not distinctly Madisonian, or Adamsonian for that matter. It was distinctly American. In mid-1783, when Washington had barely heard of Madison and had yet to correspond with him on any issue of constitutional substance, the general had privately told a friendly clergyman that, for reasons of national security, America needed to call a convention of the people to invest the central government with more power. Similar Continentalist themes prominently appeared in Washington's famous 1783 Circular Letter to State Governors on the occasion of the General's anticipated retirement. (laughs) Thus, the Constitution's most notable elements, a bicameral and tripartite Continental regime, authored by the people, rooted in national defense considerations, conferring more power on central officials, and summing into existence a robust central executive, were Washington's darlings before they were Madison's. Nor did Madison's most creative contribution to the Federalist, uh, that is the Federalist Papers, reach or sway large numbers of undecideds in the ratification process. In the moment, Hamilton's and Jay's Federalist essays were far more important and influential. Madison may have been one of the Constitution's best friends and guardians, but he was not its father. Um, Now let me read you just a little bit about who was its father and why. George Washington. The father of our country has the strongest claim to be the father of its Constitution. Indeed, the two concepts, Constitution and country, form one system. The Constitution is the country's legal spine, Without the former, the latter would have an entirely different shape. Here's the case for Washington. No one else came into the convention with anything like Washington's stature. Common folk across the continent had never heard of James Madison or James Wilson or any other delegate except Franklin. At best, a typical delegate was known to political elites and perhaps to ordinary voters in his home state. Every American knew of George Washington. At the convention itself, Washington presided by acclamation and signed the parchment before all others. Uniquely, he got everything he wanted, in part because he wanted fewer things than did some of his more theoretically-minded fellow delegates. Unlike Madison, who came to the convention with no clear vision of executive power, Washington cared deeply about creating a strong unitary president to lead the nation domestically and internationally. He knew, as indeed all America knew, that if the Constitution's reforms prevailed, he would likely be summoned as America's first leader under the new plan. On key issues of executive structure and authority, he got what he wanted, a presidency far more muscular than any state counterpart, that is, state governors, with an independent electoral base, a substantial four-year term of office, unlimited reeligibility a powerful pair of veto and pardon pens, broad appointment and removal power, military and diplomatic heft, personal control over executive department heads, and more. Indeed, the federal constitution's single most distinctive feature, its biggest and most obvious break with all 13 regimes then, uh, state regimes then in place, was its breathtakingly strong chief executive by American revolutionary standards. This distinctive feature owed more to Washington alone than to all the other delegates combined. Washington also cared passionately about empowering the national government as a whole so that it could win the next war, or at least not lose it, and also win the love and loyalty of ordinary Americans. Here, too, his wish came true. Other than that, he did not sweat the details. The Senate could be directly or indirectly elected, proportion to population or not. The president should be able to win and hold office independently of Congress, but both direct election and an electoral college could work. Crucially, both would tend to frustrate foreign intrigue in presidential selection. Both would involve decisions made by a large number of voters and or electors scattered across the continent who would be hard to find and bribe. A president should have hefty veto pen, but its precise shape did not obsess Washington at Philadelphia. Put differently, Washington cared passionately about fixing the geostrategic problem with a workable blueprint. Washington, indeed, epitomized the geostrategic problem to be solved. America would need a constitution that would enable Washington personally and all who would afterward stand in his shoes to stymie the British again, if necessary, and to do so with or without the French, or if necessary to stymie the French with or without the British. The constitution that emerged from Philadelphia gave Washington what he wanted and needed for himself and for his country. The... copious notes that James Madison and others took can easily mislead. Washington's voice almost never appears. He did not speak because he did not need to. On the biggest issues, the men in the room knew what Washington wanted, and they obliged him. Most of the delegates had borne arms in the war. A third were veterans of the Continental Army, and five of them one from each of five distinct states had personally served as aides-de-camp to Washington himself, New York's Alexander Hamilton, Pennsylvania's Thomas Mifflin, Maryland's James McHenry, Virginia's Edmund Randolph, and South Carolina's Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. On smaller issues, Washington did not engage because it made little sense to put his prestige on the line in this skirmish or that one. He reserved his power for the major battles. Unlike his experience in the Revolutionary War, he won all the big battles at Philadelphia. In the ratification process, his name alone accounted for more than all the elegant arguments of Publius and James Wilson put together times two. Indeed, his five-paragraph explanatory letter to Congress accompanying the proposed Constitution was reprinted alongside the text of the Constitution itself in tens of thousands of copies of the document that circulated among the citizenry in 1787 to 1788. Washington was a succinct, charismatic, easy to grasp, and three-dimensional personification of Benjamin Franklin's join-or-die meme, the snake a meme that was the strongest argument for the new Constitution, a meme that had been born more than 30 years earlier in a newspaper woodcut appearing alongside an account of young George Washington's military and diplomatic service in America's backcountry. The fact that Washington put his name on the Constitution and the hope that he would, when summoned, return to public service to launch the new system sufficed to persuade many a fence-sitter and skeptic His unanimous election and unanimous re-election in America's first two presidential contests attest to his unique stature in that era and indeed in all of American history. As America's first president, he succeeded in making the Constitution succeed. Others succeeded because of him. James Wilson sat on the Supreme Court because Washington put him there. Wilson's opening law lecture, a grand event in the development of a mature and independent American jurisprudence, was immeasurably ennobled by Washington's attendance. Madison succeeded early on in the House because he worked to shape and implement Washington's agenda. When he later turned against Washington, his political fortunes plummeted. They would rebound after Washington's death. From his selection as commander in chief in 1775, to his fi- final retirement from public service in 1797, Washington held the public stage as America's leading man, even during his first attempted retirement in the mid-1780s. No other leading man in American history has held center
0: stage so long. So that's uh, that's persuasive. Um, and in fact when you look at the various uh, reviews that have accompanied your book uh, I think these you know very positive reviews have have latched onto to this point repeatedly I think you know numerous reviewers have noted uh, your your comments about Washington and Madison uh, and they've agreed with it um, but why is it that they latch on this I mean uh, I understand it's kind of fun to to rank presidents or ra- hear your ranking founders or Last night I was listening to a baseball game and somebody told me that uh, a player had set a record because the first five hits that he had in the major leagues were extra base hits. Who cares about that? You know, it's, it's, it might be true, but but why does it matter? Um, and here, you know, this is an interesting point, but does, does it make any difference to, to us now other than as sort of a point of debate?
1: Uh, I'll get to Madison in just a minute and why it matters, um, but I just can't resist telling you one thing since you mentioned baseball, um, which is it just puts me in mind of a very interesting little baseball factoid. My favorite player growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area was Bobby Bonds, um, uh, Barry's father, who was in the same outfield as Willie Mays, um, who was also one of my favorite players, obviously. Um, And in Bobby Bonds' first... Major League game. He hit a grand slam. And I think that may be the only person in the 20th century to have done so. Um, and I later got Bobby... So, I, so why does it matter? Oh, because I followed Bobby Bonds. Um, and he actually signed my MIT. Which, and it was one of my most prized possessions. And then I go off to Yale. And my kid brother, um, Vic borrows my mitt and loses it. <laughs> um, and uh, so I've, I've never let him forget that. He's made it up to me in a gazillion ways. He's one of the world's, you know, um, uh, uh, great brothers. Uh, um, uh, but, uh, but anyway, that's my Bobby Bond story and my baseball story. Um, first, uh, His first major league game, uh, Grand Slam. I think, again, only time in the 20th century. Now, Madison and why it matters. So let's take... One speaking of great or epic, um, one of the three most important, most canonical, constitutional Supreme Court decisions of all time. The the three biggest Supreme Court decisions by um, um, acclamation, just by consensus, are Brown versus Board of Education, McCulloch versus Maryland, and Marbury versus Madison. Now. McCulloch versus Maryland is all about the question narrowly of whether the Bank of the United States is constitutional, whether Congress has enumerated power to create a bank, even though the Constitution doesn't say the words bank or corporation. More broadly, McCulloch is a canonical case about the scope of congressional power. Uh, now, here's the backstory. story. The Bank of the United States was proposed in the first Congress. Uh, Alexander Hamilton hatched the plan, and James Madison opposed the plan in the first House of Representatives, and he opposed it in 1791 by saying not just that it was unwise, but that it was unconstitutional. And he was backed uh, 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 by his uh, partner, his political ally, Jefferson, which is when they begin to turn against the Washington administration. Uh, uh, Before that, Madison is basically Washington's prime minister. Madison is significant because he's doing Washington's bidding. Washington is in the executive branch. He needs a point person in Congress. Madison is his point person. Madison's pushing through a Washington agenda, say, with a Bill of Rights and the First Judiciary Act and a thing called the Decision of 1789. The presidents have unilateral power to fire cabinet officers at will. So Madison's on board, and that's why he's significant, because he's doing Washington's bidding. But in the bank uh, debate, he publicly opposes the bank and says it's unconstitutional. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that in just
0: a second. So, you know, I know that uh, in the book you make a point that um, Madison, you know, changes his mind on various issues because he becomes—because he's a pal because he, he becomes, you know, political, he has to get reelected, and he, he panders in some sense to his local st- constituency. So if we're talking about whether it matters whether Madison or Washington is the father of the Constitution— and this would be relevant if uh, he opposes McCullough because it's against his original philosophy of what the Constitution should mean. If he's just opposing it because he's changing his mind for political reasons, then that wouldn't hearken back to the question of whether it's Washington or Madison's Constitution.
1: Well, I promise I'm going to come back to that because Madison is a flip flopper, um, uh, and 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 he's not, and that's one of the reasons he's not. You know, as um, immortal um, as, as Washington, but, but just to go back, what he's saying in 1791 isn't just the bank is unwise, my constituents don't like it, I think it's a mistake. He's saying it's unconstitutional. And he's saying, I was there at Philadelphia, and I remember that we voted against, for example, a, pr- um, a proposal to, create, uh, to give, uh, explicitly give Congress power to create a corporation. So he's trading on this idea that I was there uh, and, um, Washington, the bill passes, uh, despite Madison's objection, overwhelmingly, um, Madison gets very few votes outside his region, and we're going to come back to that, um, the only votes he gets are basically from the South, and especially from Maryland and Virginia, um, and my story, my story is that, um, he doesn't like the bank, because it's, all, it's connected to the deal about where the national capital is located. The bank is going to be in Philadelphia. If the bank is located in Philadelphia, maybe the national capital will be located in Philadelphia. And he had been working to make sure that the, the national capital would be on the banks of the Potomac uh, near um, uh, Virginia. Um, and that deal was tentatively in place, but he's worried that the bank might unravel that. And consistent with that political account, almost all the votes against the bank come from the South, and especially from Maryland and Virginia, if he had a good and principled constitutional argument, you'd think he'd get votes um, uh, up and down the coastline, and he doesn't. So now, what's Washington supposed to do? Uh, he was there at Philadelphia, um, but, um, and he knows a thing or two about the Constitution, uh, but uh, uh, he, 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 a leading person, um, whom he does respect, is saying it's unconstitutional. So what and, if, and if he agrees, he should veto the bill and prevent it from becoming law. So he asks his cabinet to weigh in. And Jefferson says, oh, Madison's right. Um, and Edmund Randolph from Virginia, who's his attorney general, says, oh, Madison's right. But Hamilton writes a response saying, no, this is ridiculous. A bank is perfectly valid as a national security instrument. Banks are really useful for winning wars. Um, Britain beats France consistently because it's got a better capital structure. In the Revolutionary War, we were at a disadvantage because actually we didn't have a, um, a, a proper financing of the federal government in general and of the army in particular. And we have Indian conflicts and other armed conflicts. And what you need to do is we need to have taxes, Um Uh, which need to be collected and deposited somewhere, and then the money needs to... And and sometimes, even though you're funding uh, um, uh, operations with taxes, the money has to be spent a little bit before it's collected, and we also have to pay back the old war debts. So for all of those things, we want a bank to collect tax revenues, to store the the funds, um, so to move money around. It's a big country and you got to get the money to the soldiers on site and on time you got to get money to the war suppliers on site and on time and if you don't do that then we 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 lose these wars and so says one old soldier to another and they were at valley forge and they were at yorktown and madison wasn't and john adams for that matter wasn't and thomas jefferson uh, wasn't and they don't get the central purpose of the constitution which is national security and George Washington does, because it's Washington's Constitution, not Madison's. And, and Hamilton understands it, because he's Washington's, he's in Washington's brain. He was Washington's aide-de-camp at Philadelphia, as you just heard in, in the reading. So he writes an opinion saying it's fully constitutional. It's justified by national security, even though the words bank and corporation don't appear. They don't have to appear. There should be a broader understanding of federal power, as long as we read the Constitution holistically, Um, The question is whether the bank really fit with why the people said, yes, we uh, do. We agree to the Constitution. And Washington is persuaded, and he signs the bank bill. Now, flash forward. Um, McCulloch versus Maryland. The issue finally comes before the Supreme Court. And what does the Supreme Court do? It sides unanimously with Hamilton and Washington against Madison. And if you think Madison is the father of the Constitution, oh, this is a little bit of a problem. But there's also this complexity, as you mentioned, because Madison, in the meantime, McCulloch is 1819, has has flip flopped. He's now um, decided that a bank bill is constitutional, and he signs one into law. The original bank lapsed, but he signs a bank bill into law, and he does so because. When the bank bill lapses, America is losing, or at least not prevailing, uh, not doing well in the the second war of American independence, which we call the war of 1812, and the Brits burn the capital to the ground uh, uh, on Wash on. Excuse me on on. Madison's watch because he doesn't understand executive power and national security. He's not the father of the Constitution. Federalist 10, which is not about national security, is not where it's at. The early Federalist Papers, which are about national security, are what it's all about, and those were Hamilton's um, uh, uh, Federalist Papers, building on Washington's geostrategic insights. So um, uh, Marshall writes an opinion saying, corporation, we admit it, doesn't say bank, But a uh, a bank is completely uh, appropriate given the national security uh, uh, duties of the federal government. And it's a unanimous opinion and an epic opinion. And when I say it's unanimous, um, I want to remind our audience that the people on the the McCulloch Court include people that... Madison himself has put on the court, like Joseph Story, that Jefferson himself has put on the court, uh, like William Johnson. So it's a unanimous opinion repudiating Madison's early claims, which he made kind of as um, uh, constitutional claims, which he made claiming, oh, I was at Philadelphia, and I remember all this stuff, and, um, and we didn't agree to this. I want to read you one key passage from McCulloch versus Maryland, in which you, s- you will hear... The geostrategic argument, which is Washington's argument and Hamilton's um, argument.
0: Let's just define the uh, the cleavage here between Washington and Madison. The issue, then, you would say, is the constitutional issue that Madison and Washington uh, part ways on has to do with enumerated powers. Would you say the scope of enumerated powers and Marshall is
1: and Hamilton are open to a a a more generous understanding of congressional power, at least where the core purposes of the Constitution are implicated, namely national security. But there are other
0: core purposes as well in addition to national security, correct?
1: Sure. Um, uh, Fiscal operations, other things. Um, uh, uh, But for my purposes, um, fiscal operations, um, uh, uh, taxing and spending are very much connected here to um, national security. And let me read you the key passage from McCulloch itself. So here's Marshall, uh, channeling Hamilton and Washington and repudiating Madison. Although among the enumerated powers of government we do not find the word, bank, or incorporation, we find the great powers to lay and collect taxes, to borrow money, to regulate commerce, to declare and conduct a war, to raise and support armies and navies, the sword and the purse, all the external relations and no inconsiderable portion of the industry of the nation are entrusted to its government. Throughout this vast republic, from the Saint-Croix to the Gulf of Mexico, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, revenue is to be collected and expended. Armies are to be marched and supported. The exigencies of the nation may require that the treasure raised in the north should be transported to the south, that raised in the east conveyed to the west, or that this order should be reversed. And by the time... So he's defending the bank on national security grounds, holistic constitutional interpretation, just in the spirit of Washington and Hamilton reputing Madison, although Madison himself is reputed Madison. He's, he's changed his mind. He doesn't want to admit that he was wrong the first time, just like politicians today don't want to admit they're wrong. Mike Pence doesn't want to admit, you know, in a big way that he was completely wrong to have ever allied with Trump in any way. He still can't quite admit that, even though he's distancing himself in certain respects. So, so Madison as president signs, the bank bill into law, because he begins to understand national security a little bit better when he's president of the United States rather than just a Paul from Virginia. Um, So, so far what I've just explained is why um, it matters for McCulloch that um, it's Washington's constitution. And Marshall, in fact, emphasized that Washington signed the bill into law. That's actually one of the arguments he he makes in McCulloch. A mind as pure as intelligent as this country can boast, says. uh, uh, Marshall uh, was convinced Um, uh, to sign the bill, and and Marshall is actually um, uh, Washington's first biographer. So it matters to Marshall that it's really Washington's constitution. It definitely matters to Hamilton. It matters in McCulloch, but you might say, okay, fine. Why does that matter today? All you've done thus far is say, okay, this is significant for understanding uh, one of the three big cases, um, but so what? Now let's take something that really matters today health care for tens of millions of Americans, Obamacare. The Obamac- The argument against Obamacare was a version of the silly arguments that Madison made early on. Madison said, oh, and Jefferson, oh it doesn't say um, bank, it doesn't say corporation. And people say, oh it doesn't say individual mandate or something like that. Um, but long before the Supreme Court in the Sibelius case upheld the bank. I was arguing uh, that the bank should be, up, excuse me, that uh, Obamacare should be upheld on McCulloch, on the same theory as McCulloch. Um, and indeed, um, there are multiple arguments why uh, Obamacare is completely constitutional. But one of them is a national security argument, and which you understand if you understand the Constitution was about national security, which is Washington and. Hamilton's theme, and not Madison's. Madison's Federalist Ten is not about that, but the Constitution is about that. And I wrote all this up, um, and before, long before Sibelius, um, and uh, which is the case where the Supreme Court just barely upheld Obamacare, and then more recently, John Marshall, excuse me, John Roberts, uh, for 18th slip, has upheld it again in a case called Burwell, and as we speak. The issue is yet again before the Supreme Court this term, um, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But here's what I wrote, and I don't know if um, the justices um, read this, but it was available to them. Um, um, So here's what I wrote. Uh, Interstate commerce and national security intertwined at the founding as Marshall, who had served alongside Washington at Valley Forge, understood in his very bones. Nor was this intertwining limited to the founding era. President Abraham Lincoln's Transcontinental Railroad and President Dwight Eisenhower's Interstate Highway System both famously promoted national security and interstate commerce. And so does Obamacare. In the 21st century, the next war may well be biological, that is conducted via germ warfare. Wow, I was seeing this before Wuhan and all the rest. This is 10 years ago. As the towering constitutional scholar Philip Bobbitt, who of course was on our podcast recently, has explained in his magisterial book on terror and consent, the wars for the 21st century, quote, more than 140 million persons enter the U.S. by air every year. The flight time between points of departure and arrival is seldom more than 24 hours. Yet diseases such as plague and smallpox, have incubation times ranging from three days to two weeks, respectively. So he's imagining pandemics and other things, says Bobbitt. If we are to address this vulnerability to biological warfare from the supply side, we must strengthen public health systems, unquote. Uh, Like Marshall, Bobbitt, a former senior director for strategic planning at the National Security Council, knows whereof he speaks. When he discusses national defense matters, and their connection to issues of federal constitutional power. How does Obamacare help address the issues raised by Bobbitt? Preventive health care enhances herd immunity. I'm writing this 10 years ago. I'm talking about herd immunity, and therefore makes America more secure from threats posed by viruses unleashed by enemies, foreign and domestic, viruses that do not stop at state borders. Obamacare encourages preventive health care by subsidizing care... By ensuring access to those with pre-existing medical conditions and by requiring individual mandates to arm themselves, arms is kind of in quotes, I'm using it metaphorically, with health insurance, which will incentivize individuals to get regular checkups, vaccines, yes, I'm emphasizing vaccines 10 years ago, and other preventive care. In 1792, national defense required individuals to have muskets and a powder. There was an early statute mandating people get muskets. Today, National defense requires individuals to have health insurance and vaccines, or so Congress might properly find, and it's not the proper role of judges to deny Congress the right to make this call in the name of national security and interstate slash international commerce. So here's my claim. If you understand that Madison was not the father of the Constitution, Washington was, you're going to be actually more impressed by the fact that Washington, backed by Hamilton, signed the bank bill and the law Rather than the fact that Madison, backed by uh, Jefferson, who also w- wasn't even there uh, when the Constitution was adopted, opposed the bank bill on constitutional grounds, you're going to be more impressed by Washington's support, backed by Hamilton, than his opposition. You won't be surprised that that Madison flipped and flopped on this issue, um, because he, he um, uh, and and because when he becomes president, he begins to see the centrality of national security um, and. That has huge implications for Obamacare. Um, by now, the there's way, a second argument in Obamacare.
0: By the way, one um, uh, listening to your argument there, I think we know where you would come out, uh, subject to the details of any such statute, of course. But if there were a statute uh, with a, requiring people to get vaccinated, it sounds like uh, you know the arguments are clear for for how that would go.
1: Um, well, there's some indivi- it, it, it would be connected to national security, but there would also be individual rights, Bill of Rights sorts of issues um, uh, for religious conscientious objectors and all the rest. So that would raise some other issues. But Madison isn't arguing that a bank violates some individual right. Because if he, he did, he would say, well, states can't have banks, and, but, 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 but states have corporations and banks. Um, so um, now let me mention one other argument that I made. Um, before the Sibelius case was decided. I thought there were multiple arguments in support of congressional power to pass the Obamacare legislation. And you just heard the national security argument building on McCulloch. And yes, it Constitution doesn't say mandate, doesn't say bank or corporation. Um, it, we have to understand congressional power holistically, you we'll have to read the Constitution purposefully, and the core purpose of the Constitution was national security, and Madison didn't quite say that, he didn't quite understand that, but Washington understood that first, last, and always, as did Hamilton, and so that's one reason that it matters, that it's Washington's Constitution. You'll understand McCulloch better, and therefore you'll understand a case like uh, Sabilis better, and it should have been nine o rather than 5-4. That was an embarrassment that it was 5-4. And there are, I know, some scholars who are still trying to kill Obamacare, and I don't agree with those efforts, and I don't even respect them, truthfully. Um, Now, um, another argument that I put forth before the Sibelius case was even decided um, was that... um, Uh, the argument that that John Roberts ultimately latched onto that um, the taxing power uh, justified uh, the Obamacare mandate. And here again, um, if you think that Madison is the father of the Constitution, it's going to be more complicated because Madison in the early Congresses actually opposed a broad understanding of the federal tax power. Um, but Hamilton supported broad taxing authority, as did Washington. So, and, and this is relevant today both for Obamacare and for the Biden tax agenda that we're going to see unfold soon enough. Uh, so in a nutshell, uh, the early Congress imposes a tax on carriages, which are, in effect, Um, luxury items only sort of you know um, rich people we're talking about the class issue rich people have carriages
0: like Um, like, jeff bezos's yacht that goes inside his other yacht
1: that's exactly if you if if, you know if you're a jane austen fan you can think about baruch landau uh, you know um uh, but uh um if um in in modern terminology this would be like a tax on um Yes, um, on uh, fancy cars, on Maseratis or uh, or Ferraris or yachts or something like that. It's a luxury tax. Who supports it? Alexander Hamilton does, you know, who gets a bad reputation as just being a tool for for the rich. He's always supported luxury taxes, even before the Constitution was adopted. Um, He supported them in New York State, Um, and in the Federalist Papers, because he's really interested in taxing, it's just connected to national defense, because you, know, you need money for the army. He writes, I think, seven Federalist Papers about the taxing power. And again, if you think it's Hamilton's, excuse me, if you think it's Madison's Constitution, you pay no attention to those Federalist Papers, or you pay no attention to the first nine Federalist Papers, which are basically Jay and, and Hamilton on national security. You say, oh, it's all about ten. No, it's not all about 10. It's not Madison. No one pays any attention to the Federalist 10 um, during the ratification process, as you heard from from my reading. So Hamilton and Washington are about national security, national tax power, and Hamilton believes in a broad ability of the federal government to impose all sorts of taxes, including luxury taxes, and he pushes the idea of a carriage tax, this luxury tax. And Madison, in the early congresses, gets up. He votes against it. He says it's unconstitutional. He has all sorts of private correspondence saying, and when this gets to the Supreme Court, I predict they'll invalidate the thing. Okay, and he's completely wrong on this. Um, So, by the time the issue reaches the Supreme Court, um, some of Madison's pals in Virginia are um, uh, drum up a a test case, and, and Madison is supporting them. By the time this has happened... Hamilton is no longer Secretary of the Treasury. He's um, uh, in private practice. But at Washington's request, he comes out of retirement and argues the case in the United States Supreme Court. The only time he ever argued a case before the U.S. Supreme Court, he goes all the way down to Philadelphia because he's he's in New York, and the national capital has temporarily relocated to Philadelphia before its final move to what we call Washington, D.C., on the banks of the Potomac. Um, and he argues the case, and all the newspapers cover it, and they're very impressed, and all, almost all the members of Congress actually play hookies to watch Hamilton's oral argument, and, and the justices are swooning and ooing and awing, because Hamilton is a very impressive oral advocate, and the Supreme Court unanimously upholds the carriage tax in a case called Hylton, which our audience has never heard of. I had never paid much attention to it um, in my first 10 years of law teaching. Um, I've come to believe it's the single most important Supreme Court case before John Marshall appears on the court, because the American Revolution was all about a debate about taxes, the Stamp Act, and, and, and other things. And that's what I now understand, having really clearly told the story of the 1760s and 1770s. And the Articles of Confederation, so that's all about taxes. And the Articles of Confederation fail because they don't generate enough revenue. It's a tax problem, and and so the federal government can't pay its bills and can't pay the army and can't pay the the creditors. And if you can't pay the creditors, no one's going to lend you money when there's a next war or a national crisis. So taxing power is huge. Hylton is huge. Um, And the Supreme Court sides against Madison with Washington, who signed the bill into law with Hamilton, who was the architect of the bill, and they do so unanimously. And what happens later in the story? Mad, uh, uh, Jefferson enforces that, that law. Um, he won't enforce other laws like the Sedition Act, but he treats it as a fully constitutional law. Mad, the law lapses. Madison, when he's a war president, signs into law a new carriage tax very quietly because he hates to admit he made a mistake, kind of like Emily Lutella, never mind, hoping no one will notice. And if you think... Madison is some great constitutional genius. This is an embarrassment. Now, Noah Feldman doesn't tell you about this in his biography of Madison, and neither does Jack Rakoff. These Madison flatterers don't even tell you that on this really big constitutional issue, Madison goofed up. Now, again, why is that relevant? Because I argue, even before Sibelius, that if you understand Hylton, um, and it's rightly decided, and unanimously so, and the, no justice, I think, ever since has ever called Hilton into question, that's an argument for a broad reading of the tax power which would support um, the idea that Obamacare can be justified as an exercise of the tax power. Um,
0: so, so um, But, of course, Madison wasn't opposed to the idea of taxation at all, right? In other words, it was a particular type of right. tax that was at issue. Well, in, in. Well, he had,
1: he had a stingy idea about um, the, the, the tax power. He read the tax power too narrowly, and why does this matter even now? So imagine for tens of millions of Americans, because the Supreme Court right now is going to be um, deciding very soon a question of whether Obamacare is still valid or not, um, uh, and it's going to be connected in part. The oral argument was about the tax power, in part. I don't want to get into all the technicalities.
0: So there's also do. a discussion of this in the book about about Hylton and direct taxes, which are the, oh, is what this comes great down detail. To. And, um, and, and um, it also and, and is and relevant. Me, it also is relevant to the question of wealth taxes, correct? Let, let me get into that in just that's a second, but
1: not everyone. Uh, there's been at least. You know, uh, some folks whom uh, that, um, not everyone may love my tax discussion, um, but truthfully, it's one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, and and you might say, well, Achille, you just you know love everything that you write, but okay, but why do I like this more than other stuff? And uh, because um, it, it, I taught myself stuff; it was new. I now understand the tax power in ways that I didn't before. I understand the connection to slavery in ways that I didn't before. And one of my best readers ever, you're one of my best readers, and that's why I take, I, I don't, I care a lot about what a few people think, the people I most respect. You know, you at the top of the list, um, but another person, who's one of my, in, in the people I most respect in, in, in life, both personally and professionally, is my uh, friend, Paul Ian Ayers. We've been friends forever. Ian is a law school graduate. Um, Ian is also a Ph.D. economist. He got his Ph.D. from MIT. He's an economic wizard, um, a real math genius. And he actually um, read the book, um, and he he told me, oh, I really liked your Hyalton discussion, your discussion of direct taxation. I now understand what it means in a way that I didn't before. So um, thanks for that. I'm going to tell you one story, just a little bit about the, the tax power. One more story, and then, yes, we'll connect it to one of the big issues of the current moment, which is issues about wealth tax and estate taxes, which we're going to hear more about because someone has to somehow we have to fund the Biden um, all the Biden uh, spending uh, uh, plans. So, um, at the turn of the twentieth century, the Supreme Court didn't overrule Hilton, but didn't really follow its generous spirit and actually read the tax power too narrowly and said income taxes are unconstitutional; they're beyond federal power. And never mind the fact that Abraham Lincoln, Abraham freaking Lincoln, signed into law an income tax, which he did. And the Supreme Court at the time upheld it. But at the end of the, twi- of the 19th century, the gilded age is upon us. And, um, and the justices are, to some extent, railroad lawyers and, um, and, 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 frankly, corporate fat cat lawyers. And they don't get it. And they see that an income tax might be redistributive. And they're freaked out by that. They see it as kind of socialism. And so they hold it's unconstitutional, a case called Pollock. Um, And it's five to four, and uh, an epic dissent is written by John Marshall Harlan the Elder. The Great Dissenter is his nickname. He dissents in Plessy versus Ferguson and in other landmark cases. Um, and, And he says this is a disaster for the country. And he's right. It was a huge mistake, and eventually we, the people of the United States, rose up and overruled the Supreme Court. We adopted a constitutional amendment saying yes, the federal government does not have power to have income income taxes. The Sixteenth Amendment, and it's one of only four times in American history that the people have risen up in an amendment and slapped down the Supreme Court. Um, but the story, the the backstory of this case called Pollock is, it was a screwy theory about why the income tax is unconstitutional, but it was devised by a Yale Law School graduate named Southmade. This was his big claim to fame. He didn't argue the case, his law partners did. He was a Boston lawyer. Um, he's a Yale Law School graduate, and this is his big claim to fame. And uh, and when he passed this, his family endows a chair in his honor at the Yale Law School, and wouldn't you know it, um, with um, I get that chair, and and I first start railing against uh, Pollock in my 2005 book, you know. As the Southmaid professor, this is before I got my Sterling chair, um, and I have an end note saying, you know, Charles Southmaid probably wouldn't agree with what I'm saying here. (laughs) But, you know, uh, um, and and the the even funnier story, since we are talking about the Ivy League, is er, a predecessor of mine who was Southmaid professor and then Sterling professor and was one of the three or four most eminent tax scholars of the 20th century. Boris Bittkari had a um, five-volume treatise on tax law. He, too, was a South Maid professor, and then later Stern the professor, and he, too, actually thought the argument in Pollock, South Maid's argument, was screwy and said so and had to say, oh, you know, don't blame South Maid for my view. South Maid actually disagreed probably with what I'm about to say. But Boris Bitker and I um, both um, have a broad understanding of congressional tax power based on Hylton, based on Hamilton and Washington, um, and contra- James Madison. Um, Now, why does that matter today beyond Obamacare, which was upheld on the tax power? Because Joe Biden has cut a lot of checks um, uh, to do all sorts of things. Uh, uh, Infrastructure plans are are still in the works, but but COVID relief and other things, someone's going to have to pay for this, and and we're going to have to start actually having taxes. And some of the tax measures that are being discussed Wealth taxes and certain kinds of estate taxes, but especially wealth taxes, will be challenged on constitutional grounds, uh, and um, and the strongest argument against those challenges comes from Hamilton and Alexander Hamilton and George Washington. Oh and Madison is perhaps on the other side because Madison had too narrow an understanding of all this. So it matters whether you basically think um, that um, uh, it's Washington's constitution, and therefore we're going to pay particular attention, give him special weight, his early decisions, like signing into law a carriage tax, signing into law a bank bill, or we think it's Madison's constitution, and we're going to give special weight to the things that he said especially Early on, in close proximity to the framing and ratifying of the Constitution in the early Congresses, rather than later on when he actually changes the stripes, but tries to, to to keep that very quiet.
0: So it sounds like overall that one can think of Madison's view as more somewhat more cramped than Washington's when it comes to you know enumerated powers, the tax power, and so forth. That there's a you know a, a greater uh, flexibility to carry out the. Let's say the purposes of the preamble in Washington, and, and that's
1: and, and that's a generous reading of Madison, saying he's doing that because he's principled. I actually think, as I'm a political scientist and political scientists are cynical, that the the better explanation, the m- the more comprehensive one, is. He's a, he's a Paul. He's not just a pure political thinker, and he's pandering to the base because um, people in Virginia don't like a bank. Um, they, they don't understand banks, and Madison doesn't even understand banking, his connection to national security. And when he's president, he flip-flops um, because now he has to defend everyone in America and not just you know his um, anti-federalist uh, rural base. Um, and uh, so um, on, on this view, he's not that different Than politicians today who know that principle says one thing, but their local base says something else, and they're caught betwixt and between. Um, That's Liz Cheney's dilemma right now. You know her her Wyoming base versus what she knows is right about the big lie.
0: Well, it's interesting because to the degree that you believe that, I think it actually weakens your point about Madison versus Washington, because um, if if Madison, uh, if Washington is the father of the Constitution rather than Madison. Um, but that the, the competition between the two on this point is held in two spheres. Number one, what did they actually believe about the Constitution? Number two, what did the public credit them with? Um, then you would consider it more important who wins that battle if it were both things. In other words, if it were both, not, not only did the public not credit Madison with it, but, in fact, he didn't even believe it. Not that He didn't argue for it in the first place. But well, if you're it's saying, it's well, it's only political, that that's all that it matters for, then, in a sense, the, the, the actual constitutional arguments that you make are less important.
1: You may be right. Sometimes we lawyers make too many arguments, and they're slightly the intention. I don't own a dog. It didn't bite you. And you kicked it first. You know? So um, uh, uh, Madison, you know, uh, 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 should be disbelieved because he really wasn't the fa- shouldn't be followed because he really wasn't the father of the Constitution. That's one argument, and the second one, in some tension with the first, is um, he didn't even believe it himself. He was just a Paul, um, and those are two different. Ar- but they're both reasons to not place too much emphasis on Madison. They both could be right, um, but it does matter if you if you really think it's George Washington's Constitution, you're gonna. I think, give special weight to the things that he does um, as president, more weight to what Washington does than to what Madison says.
0: And, of course, someone that uh, was at, that is currently at Princeton University might uh, tend to give Madison more credit just because of the fact that it's a Madisonian institution. Um, but in any event, in our next— And that's going to be our next uh, episode, right? Yes, indeed. So that's what I was about to say is that we're going to uh, look at uh, the, the Princeton of today and some of the really towering scholars that are there and uh, see um, you know, what their influences are and what their opinions are and where does uh, Professor Amar stand on these things. So that'll be our, our, uh, our next Princeton episode. And one
1: of them, the great Sean Wilentz, I'm actually going to critique in part, I'm going to agree with him on on certain things, but in part, I'm going to say, you know, I think he's a little too generous to Madison. So there's an interesting pattern um, to the the disagreement. And yes, it is Madison uh, related. um, And maybe, you know, is it a coincidence or not that he's at Madison's um, institution?
0: And of course, you're in a good position because no one can come back at you and say you're you're too favorable to the founders that were at Yale because there weren't any. There so. weren't any, exactly. <laughs> so that, that, make, that frees
1: me up. to, 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 to um, and, and the greatest of them all, this may be a nice way to conclude, as I mentioned before, he has a bit of an inferiority complex about it, but the greatest of them all is George Washington, and he didn't have any college training. Um, and n- n- nor did Franklin, but Franklin founded Penn. But the others um, were college men. Jefferson at William and Mary and Madison as mentioned at at Princeton and uh, Hamilton uh, at King's College Columbia and of course John Adams at Harvard
0: so until then